As I was preparing to uh, preach this sermon yesterday, I, I spent a little bit of time studying flowers. Why, you ask? I'll tell you. I was, think, I was studying the uh, aconitum flower. Who's heard of that one? You're going to learn a little something about it. It's bluish purple. I studied the oleander flower or oleander. Anyone? David Roman. It's a pinkish, reddish flower. It's, it's, it was actually known around ancient Greece and Rome. And I studied one that you've heard of called the lily of the valley, especially prominent in North America. What do these flowers have in common? They're, they're pretty. Each of them are genuinely beautiful. If you were to see them in a field, you'd be drawn to them. Some of you would pick them. At the same time, each of these flowers are actually some of the most poisonous flowers on the planet. If you touch them, if you ingested enough of their toxins, you could possibly be paralyzed. You or your pet could even die. So what would stop you from handling one of these flowers in a way that they're not meant to be? Well, this sermon, hopefully, would stop you. That was meant to be somewhat of a joke. Rough start. Or, if you knew the flower's true natures, to know their true poisonous nature would be the only thing that would stop you, protect you from their alluring beauty. So what if what is true for a poisonous flower is also true for this world? What if this world for all of its beauty, all of its wonder, is meant to be lived in only within certain boundaries. What if the true nature of the world we're living in is not what it appears to be? And what if your understanding or your lack of understanding of that reality has massive implications, not just for your life, but your eternity? That's what we're going to consider this morning in Revelation 17. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 17. And here's the main point I want you to get as we work through this chapter. Very simply, the world's true nature is not what it appears. This world's true nature is not what it appears. So do not give your life to it or seek to gain from it. So do not give your life to it or seek to gain from it. My hope, my prayer for you as a Christian is that you will be warned against loving this world this morning. You will be so confident in our God who reigns over this world. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're thinking about the Christian faith, I want you to ask yourself what you're trying to get from this world. And whether that's wise or foolish. Is that wise or foolish? Three points we're going to work through. Number one, the world's true nature. The world's true nature. Number two, the world's deceptive appearance. The world's deceptive appearance. So true nature, deceptive appearance, and three the world's surprising destiny. The world's surprising destiny. 
Let's begin in Revelation 17, 1 to 6, looking at this world's true nature. This is the word of the Lord. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon, the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Last week we saw the seven bowls of wrath. We left the seventh bowl of the last chapter. We saw history had ended with that bowl. But now we start to see here specifically the destiny of the different enemies of the Lamb. And first we begin with Babylon. And the vision begins with this angel coming back to John. She just poured out the bowls of wrath now to show John the judgment of the great prostitute seated on the many waters. It's vivid language, isn't it? She's, she's the great prostitute because of her spiritual reality. She loves false gods. She seduces others to love false gods. Look at her power in verse 2. She seduced the kings of the earth. They've gotten into her bed. With her wine, the earth dwellers dwellers have become drunk. So whoever she is, we're meant to see she's powerful. She has bit the will of everyone from great kings to commoners toward her. And then verse 3, the angel carried John away, just in the spirit, into a wilderness. Now, being in the spirit is formal language for receiving prophecy, prophetic vision. It's not noting he was just having a spiritual experience. So why the wilderness? Now remember back in Revelation 12, we saw the woman flee into the wilderness during this time between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. She went there to be nourished. So the wilderness symbolizes where the church is being fed by word and sacrament or ordinances during this present age. The wilderness is the safe and protected place to live in this world. And it's from the wilderness that we are able to see and understand the true nature of this woman who is sitting on this beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've already met this beast. We met this beast in Revelation 13. It was the beast 
rising from the sea with ten horns, seven heads, and blasphemous names on its heads. We saw that this beast represents the state. It represents the government that will continue in various ways and forms to oppose or persecute the church. We know from Daniel, we know from this book, his ten horns stand for his power. And his seven heads possibly, most likely describe how hard the beast is to kill. He reminds us of the fourth beast from Daniel 7, which we know from that chapter was Rome. So I certainly think that's true. I don't think the beast is limited to that. The beast stands for every human empire that is great in power and demands absolute submission from its subjects. Is this not true in the world today? The beast has been, it will be present throughout this time between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And notice the woman is closely connected to the beast. This woman is not the woman we met in Revelation 12. That woman was the church, the people of God across the ages. This woman is her enemy. She's strikingly beautiful. Look at verse 4. She's dressed in purple, scarlet. That would have been fine dress. Wealth alone would have gotten that. She has gold and jewelry and pearls, and she has a golden cup. It's expensive. That cup is beautiful and attractive, but it should not be attractive to everyone. No one in their right mind would drink what's in the cup. It's full of abominations, impurities of her sexual immorality. The world may not see the cup that way. That's the cup's true nature. Who is the woman? Look at verse 5. Her name is on her forehead. Remember, in Revelation, your name on your forehead signifies your spiritual reality. She's Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. We met Babylon the Great already in Revelation 14. And her description, let's just say it's not very flattering. She's the mother of prostitutes. Earth's abomination. I can't think of any mother that wants to be described that way. Except this is who Babylon is. We've seen Babylon began at Babel. It took form in the empire of Babylon. Babylon comes to stand for this world. This organized world of rebellion against God. It seduces It dulls your spiritual senses through its wine and its pleasures. William Hendrickson very insightfully writes, Babylon's form changes, its essence remains. Babylon is the world. It was Rome in John's day, all its glory and power But now Rome's power is gone. Babylon's form changes. Its essence remains. 
Babylon is, is everything that the Apostle John describes in 1 John 2. The lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's such an appropriate name. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So deceptively attractive. Babylon is this godless world that manifests itself in different ways and in different societies. But notice this about Babylon. She's drunk. She has enjoyed drinking something so much to the point of careless joy that it's excessive. And what is it? It's the blood of the saints and the martyrs of Jesus. If you will be faithful to Jesus Christ in this world, there will be a cost. Until Jesus returns, blood will continue to be tragically shed by faithful saints. John marvels at this vision. Maybe he's astonished at the the depth of evil of the world. Maybe he's just overwhelmed. What could we be certain about the true nature of this world from this brief vision? First, we are meant to see this. We are meant to see the depth of idolatry and false gods that have power and are foolishly followed in this world. This woman is sitting on a, sitting on a beast full of blasphemous names. This woman has a cup full of abominations and impurities. She's godless. She's seduced many to exchange what is true for nothing but a lie. And so you're meant to see the true nature of this world spiritually so that you will never try to get from this world what it cannot possibly give you. I don't want to ruin this experience for any one of you here. My, my guess is that for at least the younger ones among us, maybe some of the older, there is nothing like going to the Corniche in Ras al and seeing the newest Ferris wheel or pop-up entertainment that has suddenly come up over the last week. But as you grow older, believe me, you'll start to see all of that a bit differently. You won't just wonder if it's safe. Like a carnival, it won't even be as attractive to you. I remember when we first moved here, there was this really cheap playground in the middle of the food court in Alhambra, and, and they were charging 20 to 30 dirhams a head just to play on this, this playground. And, and we had only three kids then, but, you know, kids want to play on the playground, and it gets expensive to play on this cheap playground, and we would try to stop our kids from liking this playground. The point is, once you start to see the true nature of something, it protects you from giving to it what you shouldn't. Friends, the picture that we see here is one being painted of a godless world that is so clearly compelling, it's attractive, but it will not satisfy you. The idols on offer in this world, whether it's money, whether it's sexual pleasure, whether it's just comfort to yourself, they're all attractive. They're all so empty. So I wonder for you, what idol do you chase? Think about that. 
Does that idol leave you satisfied? Or does it keep demanding more from you? It never lets you go, does it? It keeps asking of you. And that's because idols take. They never give. They make you think they will. They, that's their power. They, they offer you something. But what they're doing is they're ultimately slowly destroying you. Is it money for you? When do you ever think it's enough? When you reach that goal, it's, it's curious how something else comes to mind. That if you just had enough more, you could meet that goal. You could be happy. The world sucks us in by offering us what can never satisfy us. The world's true nature. Don't give your loyalty to this world. The earliest church needed to see the true nature of Rome as they absorbed it all around them. We need to see the folly, folly of loyalty to our world. So those being loyal to the world are being destroyed by the world because behind the agenda of this world is a beast that enjoys opposing God, enjoys opposing God's people. As you think about your life, what do the, the, the goals of your life, the patterns of your life reveal about your loyalties, about your love for the world? As you think about your money, as you think about your life, how you're spending both of those do they, do, they, do they only make sense if this world is not all there is? How much we need to be reminded that for all of the wonder of the world, all its beauty in its present state, it is opposed to the God who has created it. The good news is Christ has freed us from loving this world. Christ has freed us to love this world, not for this world's sake, but for the glory of God, for Jesus' sake. Don't align yourself with this world. In Christ, you can give your life away, certain that a better world, a perfect world, is coming. Finally, I want you to see once again how we conquer by blood, the blood of the saints and the martyrs. Babylon is not worthy of the faithful believers in this world. This is where faithful witness gets you in this world. This world is so blind, it does not perceive the true nature of God's people. But God's people must never lose sight of the true nature of this world. Faithful witness, even if it calls us to suffer, is how we conquer and it's only as we see this world as it is that we will endure in faithful witness. Has faithful witness called you to suffer? Has it cost you? Then rejoice. It means you're on the right track. It means that your suffering for Christ is attracting and getting the exact kind of opposition it should. See the world's true nature. And then secondly, see the world's deceptive appearance. Deceptive appearance, verses 7 through 14. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? 
I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast, it was and is not, it is an eighth. But it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. Together with the beast, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. As you can imagine, there are some verses here that have sent biblical interpreters all over the place. John has marveled The angel responds, and the angel reveals this mystery of the woman and the powerful beast. We learn first in verse 8, this is an old beast. It has this history, a strange present. It has a future. Twice the angel makes this point in verse 8. There at the beginning of the verse, the beast John saw was, is not, is about to rise. And at the end, it was is not, and is to come. The beast has a history. The beast was. The beast has shown itself in history already. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. How many empires have been raised up in history with great power, opposed God and his people, but now are not? John says the beast is not. Now, some have taken that to be indicative of different Caesars in Rome when the empire declined or when it was weakened. I don't think John is making that point. I I do think he's saying about Rome and other empires, they appear strong. They oppress God's people. That's what Rome did. They decline. They're brought to an end completely. It is not. But in this age, the beast is never finished. Its form changes, its essence remains. It keeps coming back. It is about to rise from the bottomless pit, then to destruction. The angel speaks of the beast here in a way that patterns Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come, except the beast only offers a cheap imitation, a fake resurrection. Who was, is not, and is about to rise. It's a resurrection that is false. It's an illusion. The the beast just continues to rise, but it's just taking a different form in a a different empire. John's day, there was time when Rome seemed it was in decline and and it kept coming back. In our day, there are terrible empires that decline or are finished. And what happens? Another one rises. But there are dwellers on the earth who will keep being deceived by the beast. Look at the second part of verse 8. 
They are those whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. They're going to marvel to see the beast. Now remember, in Revelation, earth dwellers is a technical term to designate those who follow the beast. They're opposed to the risen Christ. They're not those whose names are written in the book of life. And Revelation teaches clearly, if your name is not written in the book of life, you will not be protected from the second death. You will not be protected from the lake of fire. You will not be with the Lamb on Mount Zion. The earth dwellers marvel at the beast. So taken with its resurrection transcendent, they think, power. Remember, this vision is being given to the church at her earliest beginning. Christ had died, he had raised, he was ascended into heaven. You can imagine the confusion of the saints as the great Roman Empire just kept going on as normal. As Christ maybe to them seems so weak in the world. What's John doing? Showing the church the true deceptive nature of the beast. It has a certain kind of power in this world, but it's not like Christ's power. It's a fake resurrection. One empire destroyed, the beast's essence remains. And so it will be until the end of time. The angel says in verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. And the earth dwellers lack this wisdom. But not John, not those who have God's spirit. We can discern this. The angel explains the seven heads or the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. The woman, again, is closely connected to the beast. Now, the seven mountains surely refers to Rome. Uh, Rome was known as the city set on seven hills. So it is the city on which the woman is seated. And Rome's power was intertwined with this godless world, with the godless world culture that pervaded that day. Rome wasn't just a center of power. It was the center of everything that would lure you away from Jesus Christ. Money and materialism, gods and pleasure, commerce, luxury. It was all there. It was powerfully attractive. But do you think this is just confined to Rome? One place, one time. No. The form changes. The essence remains. This shows up again and again in history. In one sense, it was Rome, and the church needed to understand that. But the church needed to understand it's much bigger. Verse 10, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. What does it mean? Some have taken this to be seven Roman Caesars. There's much debate over which Roman Caesar they would start counting with. I I think John is more likely referring to the beast as it has manifested itself in history using seven as a number of completion. Uh, He could be relying on Daniel chapter 7, which uses a a pattern of four beasts in history. Uh, This vision presents seven, maybe Babel, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, the one who is would be Rome. And the, 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 the one who has not yet come refers to the outworking of the beast in history until the final manifestation of the beast and the Antichrist. 
John, John says, when this beast comes, he must remain only a little while. Very possibly the 42 months. We've already seen the time, times, and half a time, which represents this entire gospel age that we're in now. And so by this understanding, verse 11, the eighth beast that was and is not, it's an eighth but belongs to the seven, this beast would be the final anti-Christ. It had shown itself in history, and now it shows itself, again, it, it belongs to the seven. It's not something entirely new. Evil has manifested itself. But this beast is intensified. And it's near its end. Notice the end of verse 11. It goes to destruction. Now, whether you think it's that or whether you think it's something else, the largest, larger point is the beast has been, the beast is in world history. The beast power is evidence in real human governments that in various ways will oppose God's people and then will be intensified in the end. And the vision is given so that, not so that, you'll link every event in the world with something you see in the Bible, but that you will spiritually discern the true and deceptive nature of the world. You will discern that governments will rise and fall, but God is the one who's ultimately ruling over the evil. In verse 12, John sees a vision with ten horns. Remember, horns represent power, here, ten kings who have not yet received royal power. So, some have tried to identify these ten kings or horns with ten literal kings. I think in John's day, the ten kings could have been pointing to kings' powers outside the Roman Empire. But when we, meet, when we met the dragon, the dragon back in chapter 12, the evil dragon was then described as having seven heads and ten horns. So this has always been the nature of the dragon. He's hard to kill. He's filled with power. What's coming is not new. It's intensified. I think the ten horns represent ten kings. It's a symbol of completeness. John could be saying there's going to be a great unity of wickedness and power in a number of kings near the end. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says they're of one mind. Could it be, John is saying that the fullness of power, the ten horns, will manifest itself in one king of one mind. It's with the beast and with an intense outworking of his power who will rule at the end. They've not yet received their royal power, but they will for one hour with the beast. Verse 13 makes it so clear they have a common purpose and they hand their power and authority over to the beast. I don't know if you've noticed this, but kings don't easily give up their power. Kings are power. Notice these kings are handing their power over to the beast. And what will the beast who uses the king's power do? Verse 14, make war with the lamb. With the lamb. But just as the rest of the letter says... The Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. What is this vision teaching us? First, it's teaching us the deceptive nature of the world and the beast. 
how clearly this is meant for the church not to fear the state, not to fear the powers. Here's the Lord revealing to us the true story of the beast to demonstrate his control of the beast. Our God means for us to have confidence in him even as we, in different ways, live underneath powerful and wicked governments in this world. Revelation was not given that we might, might start a culture war, but that we might simply be faithful in witness in the midst of this great spiritual war that is already taking place. Kings and rulers have their rightful place in this world, but never forget this. The state's power is a cheap imitation of Christ's resurrection power. So do not let the state, do not let the government ever cause you so much fear that you compromise your witness. What a relevant word for us here in the UAE. Second, you are meant to see the certain destruction of evil. Wherever you land on all of this, or even if you're confused by all of it, seven kings, ten horns, John does not want you to be confused about this. Evil's time is limited. Our God will bring these kings and the ten horns to an end. Evil has a deadline, and it will not be extended. What happens to the beast that is about to rise from the bottomless pit, as frightening as that beast is, it is going to destruction. What happens to the kings and the beast who make war on the lamb, the lamb will conquer them. How unique, how powerful is the lamb? This lamb conquers the beast. So friends, evil is not an equal and opposite force to God. Evil is completely under God's authority. It will never go one step beyond his boundaries. It should heighten your trust in God. It should lessen your fear in what is evil. If you're trusting Christ, this is meant to encourage you. Evil is not out of control in this world. From wicked rulers to wicked employers in your workplace, this knowledge of evil helps you to endure in steady, faithful witness. Third, see the difference between earth dwellers of verse 8 and the called and the chosen and the faithful of verse 14. Earth dwellers' names are not written in the book of life. They are deceived. They're subject to the powers of this world. Those called, chosen, known, savingly by the Lamb can discern the truth and will be with the Lamb. We can feel like we're on the outside or the margins of this world. Revelation shows us we're on the winning side, on the right track. We're not much in the eyes of this world, but we are known and treasured by Jesus Christ. He loves us. He's going to conquer for us. And that victory will be our victory. So we might be underestimated, we might be opposed, we might be killed by this world, but we are precious to our God. This world's assignment of importance or no assignment of importance to us is not ultimate. This world is upside down. 
It has all the wrong values. This world is going to make war on the lamb in the form of the beast. And the lamb will conquer. Friends, the lamb already has conquered. Hasn't he? How did he conquer? He shed his blood. He was martyred in witness. The blood of saints and martyrs is founded on the blood of the lamb. What is the wisdom that God has offered to this wicked world? The cross. The God who is holy and majestic and eternally glorious has come into this world in Jesus Christ and has gone to the cross. It's the cross that is proclaiming to you and to the whole world how sinful you are, how sinful I am. And it's also proclaiming how loving, how full of grace, how good the true God truly is. The cross proves God is more committed to save and to redeem than we are even in our rebellion. So how has God accomplished salvation? Through the perfectly faithful life and suffering death of Christ, the Lamb. How are sinners saved? Not by your great works or your effort or your relative goodness, but by the death and the resurrection and the ascension into heaven of Christ the Lamb. Christ has conquered. Christ will conquer. He reigns in heaven. Do you discern the wisdom of God in the cross? Do you see the victory, the salvation Jesus Christ accomplished there? Then repent of any other way that you're pursuing to be reconciled to God and come to faith in Christ. Trust His work on the cross. Find life in His name. The cross is the lens through which you should discern and understand this world. This world is not the lens through which you should try to discern the cross. Friends, the story of the beast is such a terrible story compared to the story of the lamb. Trust the lamb. Don't be deceived by a beast. Find refuge in the lamb. The world's deceptive nature And finally, the world's surprising destiny. Look at verses 15 through 18. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate, naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into it, into it, into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The final part of the vision is unpacked. We see the world's surprising destiny. The angel tells John that the waters that you saw back in the very first verse of the chapter, the waters where the prostitute is seated is the world. Peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. It's that language in Revelation that we've seen describing the great number around the throne of God. 
that great number in worship. And here is another great number. Being deceived by the prostitute. Two crowds, two totally different realities, two totally different destiny. Look at this prostitute's influence. How many have been lured away toward her. We must see clearly this world is united in its organized rebellion. Even if this world does not understand itself that way. But there's more. Verse 16, the ten horns, we saw them as representing completeness in their unity of wickedness and power and purpose of of kings or a king near the end. And here's the, the surprise. The ten horns and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will destroy her. They're going to burn her with fire. The point, wickedness can feel powerful and unified, but here we're learning evil will collapse on itself. Evil cannot sustain. It will not hold. Earlier this week, I read a news story in a major newspaper with some inside accounts of how the Taliban had set up their new cabinet. According to the story, there was intense infighting about who would hold certain positions within the government. Uh, They had this meeting in the presidential palace, and it was so intense that there was shooting, and some bodyguards were killed. Evil turns on itself. And then to, to talk to brothers and sisters who, who've known or are well aware of the reality of this regime, hoping, expecting somehow the regime will ultimately fall. Evil collapses because wickedness cannot, in God's world, triumph. It can succeed for a time, but by its very nature, evil was not and it is not natural. It was totally unnatural in the garden. It's still not natural today. It's, it's powerful. It's real. But it's not normal. It's not ultimate. And we learn here there will be division amongst the wicked. They will turn against the entire godless system they had just participated with to advance. But why? Look at verse 17. God put it into their hearts. God was the sovereign over the ten kings handing over their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Real people who make real choices, who are really evil. But what does the angel make clear? God rules over it all. How many times did the scriptures show this? From Joseph to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Acts 4, Peter makes clear there were gathered in Jerusalem, Herod and Pontius Pilate and, and, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever God had predestined to take place. Real actions, real choices, real evil for which every evildoer is responsible. But evil always fulfills the good purposes of God who never does evil. That's what the Scriptures reveal. And the Scriptures clearly reveal the beast is on a leash until, not his, 
but God's purposes are fulfilled. And this woman has great dominion over the kings of the earth. The woman was Rome. The woman is more than Rome. It's the world system. And what is the world's surprising destiny? In all its evil, the world is headed toward God's purposes, not its own purposes. The world is headed toward judgment. It's headed toward destruction. So the message for you as a Christian is to have confidence that living in this world for the world to come is not foolish. It's not foolish. It's living in this world ignorant of the world to come. That's foolish. How comforting to know in this world in which evil can feel so pervasive and intense that the beast can only go this far until the words of God are fulfilled. What does this mean? This really is your father's world. Though the wrong off seems so strong, God is the ruler yet. So this next week, whatever it is, whether it's your workplace, whether it's circumstances you're facing, whether it's your uncertain future, remember it's God's world. It's His word that stands, not any lesser word. You don't have to fear the future. You know where the future is ultimately headed. And your God has revealed this, not so that you would fear, but so that you would faithfully witness to Him in whatever place the Lord has put you. This is your Father's world. It means you are strangely free to give your life away in this world and at the same time know a kind of joy this world can never touch, can never take away. We began this morning with beautiful flowers that surprisingly are poisonous and can kill. And it's only when you know their true nature that you act with wisdom around them. The same is true with the world. It's so compelling, but don't forget, it's under the authority for now of a beast who will strangely be conquered by the lamb. Brothers and sisters, the lamb has conquered. The lamb will conquer. We live in a haunted world haunted by a despicable prostitute and a ghastly beast. But we know where the world is going. The lamb wins. In this beastly world, live for the glory of the lamb. For unlike this world, when you give up your life for the sake of the lamb, he doesn't simply take it away. He gives it back eternally. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for the words and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ who has overcome the world and who rules the world and will bring the world to its certain destiny. Help us, we pray, to live for your glory this next week in your world. In Jesus' name, amen.